is if you open up our, your program, uh, there's a QR code there. You can actually scan that with your smartphone. It'll take you right to a page on our website. You can look down some different areas to serve. Check a couple of those boxes and just hit submit. It'll come to our office and one of our staff will meet with you and talk about um, an opportunity to test drive some of these areas to try them out and explore and see if that might be a fit for you to make a difference. You know, when we relocated the church to uh, the Reinholds area, um, I never realized how important blueprints would be for our church. Never realized it. But we put blueprints together for the renovations for our kids' spaces and uh, for our bathrooms and the warehouse and the lobby. And then we had some plans for this space to be uh, redone and changed. And now we're working on plans to remodel our offices so we can add some more staff and a potential parking expansion. So blueprints have become pretty crucial to the life and growth of our church here at CCC. And what blueprints do is blueprints help us see um, what is underneath of all the stuff that you see. You, you know, the colors, they don't end up on the blueprints. And, and the style of the carpet, or the, the, you know, the look of the room, the feel, that doesn't end up on blueprints. What's on a blueprint is the foundation and the framing and the wiring and the plumbing, all the stuff that's underneath of it that supports it for it to be functional and for it to be an effective space. You know, when people are looking for a church, they don't often see those things. They only see what's on the outside. But oh, I want to give you a chance to watch uh, a couple as they're trying to hunt for a church. They're trying to figure out, what's this church really about? What are they really made up of? What's underneath of everything that you see on the outside? Watch their experience. Nick and Molly just moved to the city and can't agree on what they want. They're young and energetic and looking for a new church home. We'll take some personality tests, tour the sites, ask some questions, and based on taste, experience, and location, we'll find them the perfect congregation. I'm Corey Clark, and welcome to Church Hunters. We're so excited to find a church. We just started dating. Um, with the churches we go to now, which is not for us, just not really doing it for us, you know? Right. I, I go to a satellite campus. I just find it hard to connect emotionally with a video screen. It's just... Okay, you cry during cake boss. So, like, we've been doing a lot of services online, a lot of podcasts. There are a lot of preachers we do like. Really good. But we want, we want serious, yet funny. Yeah, like commanding of the stage, yet relatable, you know? Uh, we're more looking for uh, the humor of Andy Stanley's body of Stephen Furtick. Hey guys, I'm Lori. Good to see you. My name's Nick. This hey, is Bob. Hey guys, welcome to Church Hunters. This is your first church. This is Creekside First Baptist. So while it is traditional, it's still pretty current. Just this year, the pastor started untucking his shirts. Oh. He does dress his age though, so don't worry. He's past the Osteen suit phase, but he hasn't gone full giggly yet. Because so his holes in the knees are not. It's frayed, but no one's sprayed down. Yeah, we'll show you around. Okay. You love this lobby. It's a great lobby. You know, it's not too big, not too small. Yeah. There shouldn't be enough room to catch up, chow with friends. But here's a great thing. There's a bunch of side exits. So if you need to leave early, catch the game, you can do that. Uh, yeah. Honestly, right up front. Uh, didn't love the name. Church Baptist. Don't name the church that anymore. Not these days. Thrive Church, relevant church, I don't know, Reagan Church, something. This is the soundboard they use here. Now remember, it's pretty traditional here. So when Sunday comes around, they turn it way down. <laughs> but the one knock on this church, they still use the child care numbering system on the screens. Yeah, or as the moms like to call it, a sanctuary walk of shame. 
traditional for, for us. I mean, the pastor's main point, 157 characters. I can't tweet that. I really think you guys are going to love this place. I like it. You do. We like it. It's diverse, but it's not like too diverse, you know? Scripture heavy sermon? Oh, yeah. Yeah. What about uh, as a community oriented? Absolutely. Great. Oh, women in ministry? The parking situation, you guys got to see it. super rare nowadays. It's like a, a maybe for when my parents come into town. We're a church for Christmas, Easter type of church. Like a holiday, holiday type church. One of the main reasons that I love this church for you guys is that on your personality test, Molly, you scored high in service and hospitality. There's a great welcome team you can join. Okay. And then they, you scored really high in need for accountability. And the men's groups here are amazing. <laughs> On the next episode of Church Hunters, I think you're really going to love this place. They take relevance to a whole new level. This church identifies as interdenominational. This pastor speaks out of a brand new translation. It's the Tumblr Bible. So I don't know what your journey in looking for a church was like, but, um, you know, that just gives you a glimpse of what some people's experience is. And so when you're looking for a church, you're trying to find a place that you can fit. And, uh, but it's hard to know that when you walk through the doors. You know, a few weeks ago at our church's 25th anniversary, uh, we talked about the, um, the values that we hold as a church. And values, again, are something that are not really seen. It's kind of underneath the framework of who we are as a church. And so this, uh, this spring, I wanted us to dive into a, a passage of scripture, a part of the Bible that talks about what the church is supposed to be about, what the church is, gonna be, is supposed to be like. And that passage is found in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. Paul's writing to Timothy, and he says, I'm writing because I'm going to be delayed. He says, I want you to know how people should be in God's house, what the church should act like, what the church should be like. And so over the next six weeks, we're going to spend time looking at what Paul says about a whole variety of issues in the church. We're going to talk about women's roles in the church. We're going to talk about prayer. We're going to talk about leadership. We're going to talk about um, single parents. We're going to talk about money. We're going to talk about all these things and look at Paul's perspective about them. If you have your Bibles, if you want to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1, 1 Timothy chapter 1, um, that's the passage that we're going to be starting in. It's page 960 in the Bibles that are there in your seats. Page 960 in the Bibles that are there in your seats. By the way, if you wanted to know if that serving link really works, it does. Johnny just sent me one, so he's looking for a place to serve. So I just want to let you know that that serving link does not work. So I'll be here. First Timothy chapter 1. Let me tell you what's been happening before this book is written, this book of Timothy. Paul has traveled all over uh, the known world, from Jerusalem to Rome, basically that whole area. And as he's been traveling, he's been starting churches. He goes into the Jewish synagogue, and he sees if anybody's open to Jesus. And he shares Jesus with them. And sometimes he finds a few, sometimes he doesn't find many. And, and then he goes outside, and he started talking to people in the areas where people would gather. And uh, he would find people that were interested in Jesus. And these people would form a church, a faith community, often meeting in houses. And then he would do that, stay there for a period of time, teach them about the gospel, about Jesus, and then he would move on to another location and do the exact same thing. And then he would move on to another location and do the exact same thing. And so Paul did this all over this area. Um, he took two separate trips throughout that area, and after the second trip, 
He was back in Jerusalem. He ended up being uh, sent to prison. He ended up spending time in Rome. During that time, he was under what was called house arrest, meaning he had some freedom of movement. He wasn't in a jail cell, um, but he was limited in what he could do. After Paul got out of jail, he then gathered up a couple of the men who were his protégés, who he had been had come to hear about the gospel, and he said, guys, I want to send you to some different places to check on the people in those places. One of the individuals he wanted to send was a guy named Timothy. And he sent Timothy to a place called Ephesus. Ephesus was a place where Paul had spent a short period of time, but I want to read you a couple of verses. This is Paul writing, this is um, excuse me, Luke writing what Paul said to the people in Ephesus before he left them the first time. He says, um, he says, now I know that none of you, none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. He said, for I am not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and the flock. Be shepherds of the church. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own group, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remembering for three years, I have never stopped warning you, each of you, night and day with tears. And then at the very end, says, when he had finished speaking, knelt down with them, prayed, they all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. And so Paul had spent three years with this group of individuals, but he wasn't going to see them anymore. That deeply saddened his heart. But he was going to send Timothy to go to this community to try to encourage the people who were there. Ephesus was on a seaport, so there was a harbor there, so there was a lot of a lot of wealth because of the ships that would sail in and out of this place. Uh, it was also a place that was settled by the Greeks, and uh, it was well known for their worship of Artemis. So they had a diverse religious culture, and they had a lot of wealth in this area that Paul was sending Timothy into. And so what Paul does is Paul starts in chapter 1 that we're going to look at this morning. He starts by outlining the two foundational elements that I think should be in a church. And so, you know, for those of you that are listening this morning, if you're a guest here visiting with us, I hope you come back the next few weeks, because we're going to try to look at what God says should be true in churches. Not the way churches should be done, but some of the foundational elements, some of the things that should be on the blueprints of every church. And if you call CCC your church home, and uh, this is a place that you come on a regular basis, I hope it'll maybe make some sense of some of the things that we do and why we do what we do. But I hope you also commit to living out some of the things that Paul challenges you in this, in this section of the Bible as well. So the first major component that Paul talks about that should be part of every church is love. The first major component that Paul talks about that should be part of every church is love. First Timothy chapter 1, Paul introduces himself, Paul, an apostle of Jesus, commanded by God, to Timothy, my true son in the faith. And so Paul's writing this letter to Timothy. And as Paul's writing this letter to Timothy, um, he's going to tell him a variety of things. And as he tells him these things, we have to sort those out. Because this is a letter written in another day, in another time, in another culture. You say, well, John, how do we sort those things out? Well, there are some things that the Bible says that you're like, I understand that because that same thing happens today. For instance, the Bible talks about people being murdered, says you shouldn't murder. Does that happen today? Yeah, it happens today. The Bible says you shouldn't steal. Does that, people try to steal stuff? Yeah. The Bible says you shouldn't lie or bear false witness. Is that true? Should we not do that? Yeah. 
And so you can cross this bridge from then until now very easily. So whatever God said to do then, you can walk across the bridge. It's pretty easy. Just do it right now. But there's a whole bunch of other things that it talks about in the Bible that it doesn't talk about now. Um, you know, like the Bible says don't eat certain kinds of pork. Well, we can eat pork today. There's not a lot of pork. What's the point of not eating pork? The Bible says don't wear clothes that have, you know, two different kinds of, of fabric materials in you that you're like, where did that thing come from? I, don't, I certainly don't do that today. And so these things, there's no bridge from then until now. You see, we say, what do we do with them? Do we just ignore them? Do we just set them aside? Well, I don't think that's what God says, because this is all of his word is good for us. So in those passages of scripture, we have to sift through them and say, what are the principles that we can say, oh, that's how we apply this to now. Not the same scenario, but there's an overriding principle that affects then and crosses that bridge to now. Does that make sense? So there's certain things that are the same, and we just walk across the bridge, and we know exactly what God wants us to do. There are other things that are less clear, that we have to try to understand the overriding principle to help us get from then to now. So as we go through this passage, and we're going to see it right away in the very first section here, we're going to find some things that we're going to have to figure out the principle that God is talking about. All right? Look in verse 3, where Paul begins to explain this. He says, I urged you... He's talking to Timothy. When I went into Macedonia, stay here in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer. So remember, Paul left Timothy in Ephesus. He was going on. He says, I want you to stay here. And there's some people spreading some lies. And I need you to deal with this. He goes on to explain a little bit more in the next verse. Or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is so what's happening here? Well, what's happening is there's some people who are spreading some lies, and uh, these individuals are spreading some lies. You say, what are the lies? Well, these are these are myths that are that they're talking about, and genealogies are just speculation, just stuff they're talking about that's just going on and on, really going nowhere. And you can see what the result is. It's not helping what God's trying to do move forward. Now you say, John, what are the myths and endless genealogies? I don't really know, and most theologians don't have any idea either. This is one of those things that it was a problem then, it's not really a problem now, you know, unless you're someone that, you know, is hooked on Ancestry.com, that's all you can talk about whenever people are with you. Anybody got a family member like that? I got a few like that. You know, so, um, that's not really what we're talking about, okay? That's not really what we're talking about. So what is Paul describing? He's saying that there are some things that are not true that are being spread around that are taking up a lot of people's time and attention um, that really aren't doing anything about it. But we're going to see in just a minute there's a little bit of truth mixed in them. There's a little bit of truth mixed in them. Let me give you an example. Um, some individuals might say that if you choose to follow Jesus, all your problems will go away and life will be great. say there's some truth to that. You choose to follow Jesus. Will some things in your life change? They will. Will all your problems go away? Uh, that's not going to happen. I hate to tell you. Actually, life might get a little more challenging. But you can see how if someone's communicating that message, there's a seed of truth in it. And so people grab onto it. 
but it can distract people, distract your attention from the thing that really matters. You say, so what is it that really matters? What are we supposed to be paying attention to? Paul points it out in 1 Timothy 1, 5. He says, the goal of this command is love. He says, the thing I want you to pay attention to is love. And love is sacrificially putting the needs of someone else above my, myself. He said, don't spend time speculating. Don't spend time running down these rabbit trails. I want you to spend time sacrificially putting someone else's needs above and in front of your own. And he goes on in this verse to talk about how does someone do this. He says, it comes, first of all, from a pure heart. From a pure heart. I looked at this initially, and, and you know, I'll be the first to admit my heart is not pure. It's not pure. My heart's been stained by sin. There's plenty of selfish, self-absorbed, preoccupied behaviors in my own life. Jeremiah, the prophet, said the heart of man is deceitfully wicked. Deceitfully wicked, he said. Who can even understand it? Who can even understand it? So how does, a, how does someone have a pure heart? Where does that come from? Well, I think the only way that a person can have a pure heart is if Jesus comes into that person's life and he transforms their heart. Prophet Isaiah talked about our hearts being washed white as snow. That's the only way a change happens. Is when I decide my life is not going to be about me, it's not going to be centered on me, it's not going to be focused on me, but I'm going to turn my life over to Jesus. And I'm going to choose to follow him. And he comes in and changes my heart. It's not something I can do on my own. The second thing that he says this love comes from, it comes from a good conscience, a good conscience. Conscience is our ability to do, to know right from wrong. It's our ability to make choices and decisions. But again, because of, because of sin, because of wrong done against us, sometimes my ability to choose right and wrong is seared. It's marked. It's messed up. And it's only over time that God can slowly change my way of viewing things. When you come to faith in Jesus, you realize all of a sudden that there's some things that you thought, oh, there wasn't anything wrong with doing this, saying this, living this way of life. And, and you discover God says, there's a different way to live. And there's an alternative. And so a conscience is something that can be changed over time. And the last one there is a sincere faith. A sincere faith. You can put in the word sincere, you can put the word real or authentic. It's something that's not, it's not fake, it's real. Yesterday I was uh, working on putting something together in my house and a couple individuals helping with it. And we were, um, you know, there was these parts to the piece of furniture that we were putting together. And when you turn the, turn the screwdriver on these, if you turn it too hard, they just splintered and they, they just crumble. It looks like it's a little piece of metal, but it's not really metal. It's some type of a fake alloy that's there that looks like it. And so when you look at it initially, it looks real. Oh, that's a piece of metal. But when it, what, how do you know when something is real? You have to apply what? A little pressure, right? A little pressure, and you know whether that's real or not. A little heat, and you know whether that's real or not. You can't know if something is a fake if it just shows up. You can't know if someone's faith is real just because they walk into this room on Sunday morning, just because they sit in a small room. You won't know whether someone's faith is real until they go through a difficult time in life. Until life doesn't go the way they want it to go. Until they face struggles and heartache and pain. And then you know whether their faith is real. 
And Paul said the only way that we can love this way is if our faith has been through some fire and we know that it's real. It's real. And so he says the part of the blueprint for a church should be that there are people in that church that live a life of love. So how do they do that? They do that by paying attention to these three things. Their heart, their conscience, and their faith. Sadly, Paul says, not everybody does. Not everybody does. Some have walked away from this. And there's a lot of pointless things going on in their lives. And as you've heard me share, if you've been here for any length of time, this is one of the hardest things in my job here at CCC is to to talk to people and be involved in people's lives and then something happens in their lives. Maybe their faith gets a little heat put on it and their faith doesn't, isn't real. And they walk away. And you say, where's so-and-so? They used to sit here next to me or we used to do this together. Where are, where are they? Where'd they go? And you see comments that they post on social media and you're like, what in the world happened to that person? And their faith wasn't real. We're put to the fire and drifted away. And so Paul says an authentic church, a real church, a church that you want to be a part of, part of the blueprints of that church should be people whose lives demonstrate this love that he's talking about here. He goes on then to say in the next, in the next verse, though, he says it's not just that they pay attention. To, they have to be able to sift through the truth and error. The truth and error. Part of these myths and endless genealogies, they would take a little bit of truth that God said, like Jesus is going to make a difference in your life, and then they would mix in that a whole bunch of lies. And so what people would do is either they would get caught up in it, and they would wander away in their faith, or they say, I'm just going to throw the whole thing out. I'm not going to believe it here. And so part of the struggle in that church, in that community, is they have these Old Testament laws. And they didn't have to follow all the Old Testament laws, but some of the people said that they did. So they said, we're just going to throw the law out completely. And Paul says, don't throw the law out completely. He said, the law is good for some people if you use it the right way. It's not needed for good people. They don't need the law because they're following God. They're doing what God wants them to do. But for people who don't follow God, people who disregard God, they're the ones that need the law. Because the law is going to help them face things like the laws for people who kill their fathers and mothers for murder, sexually immoral. Liars and perjurers. Now, when you look down that list, any of those look familiar like you've heard those somewhere else in the Bible before? Anybody have any vague recollection? The Ten what? The Ten Commandments, right? The second half of the Ten Commandments. Honor your father and mother. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not bear false witness or lie. And so what Paul is saying is he's saying there's some of this that's true that you need to hold on to. Don't just discard it all completely. But the central part of the way you live out your faith has to be love. Has to be love. The second thing that Paul says that needs to be a part of this faith is the gospel. Is the gospel. And Paul goes on to say in the next verse, he says, the gospel has been entrusted to me. To God, that's the he, he entrusted it to me. And so Paul has this sense that God has given him something that's very, very valuable. And we had lots of discussions in our house about this over the last few days. As, um, my son was getting ready to, 
uh, to go to the prom, and he, um, uh, for those of you who know the car my son drives, it's a 1990-something Honda Civic with a few dents and dings and things um, uh, duct taped and pop riveted. It's, it's holding together. It's, it passes inspection. That's all I know. You know. But he was looking for something a little bit nicer to drive to prom, and his sister has a fairly new car that's very shiny and no dings and bumps and, you know, and, and so there was, there was lots of discussion about, well, if I did this, and if I did this for you, and if I do this for you, would you do me? You know, and, and, and would, he, would she entrust him with her car? And uh, all I can say is I was very glad to see it sitting by the curb this morning when I got up. Don't you need to get but it was something of value, and someone was being asked to take something of value and handle it very carefully. And Paul says, he says, God has entrusted the gospel that cost Jesus his life to me. He goes on to say it in the very next verse. He says it again um, in verse 12. Um, he says this, I thank Jesus Christ, who considered me trustworthy, so I can trust this guy. And he appointed me in the service. He says, here's a job for you. I can trust him. And here's your job. They say, I understand. That makes sense. Paul was, you know, he got trusted by God to do this. But then Paul goes on in the next couple of verses to say some very, very stunning things. Look what he says in the next verse. Um, he says this. Even though I was once a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent. Paul doesn't say, I got my life all fixed up. I got everything together. And then God said, now you're good. Paul says, I was horrible. He says, I was a blasphemer. I mocked the name of the God of the heavens and his son, Jesus. He says, I was a persecutor. I caused pain to people of faith. I mistreated them verbally and physically. And I was a violent man. I caused physical harm, even taking the lives of some people. All of a sudden, our thought about who God trusted with the gospel is a little different, isn't it? God didn't trust a good man with the gospel. God trusted an evil man with the gospel. You know, if Paul lived today, um, Paul would probably be this guy. Leader of ISIS. That's who Paul would be. Had a little bit of truth, distorted the truth, got people to follow, persecuted people of faith. They're the same. And all of a sudden, the thought that God trusted him with the most important message that he would ever bring to mankind leaves us shaking in our tracks and scratching our heads. I wonder how could God trust the gospel to a guy like this? Paul goes on to say in the next um, in the next verse, he says, I was shown mercy. When we think about the gospel, the gospel is all about mercy and grace. 
because I acted in ignorance. Not that he didn't know, but he just rejected it in unbelief. Verse 14, he says this. He says, the grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly. Paul says, this is where I was. This is who I was. But God showed me mercy. And then God showed me grace. And I didn't deserve either one of those. And he poured it out on me in abundant ways that I didn't deserve. Along with faith and love that are only found in Jesus Christ. Now Paul was pretty honest about himself. He didn't beat around the bush. He knew who he was. He describes it in the next verse. He says, look what he says, of whom, Christ talking about sinners, of whom I'm the worst. Now, this is at the end of Paul's life. He's only going to live a few more years. This isn't right when Paul has the experience on the Damascus Road and God miraculously saves him. And he looks up to the heaven and says, God, I'm the worst of all people. I can't believe you saved and rescued me. I want to live my life for you. That's not when Paul's saying this. Paul's saying this at the end of his life, after he's written nearly half of the New Testament, after he's planted churches all over the known world. He's written letters to people. He's shared the gospel and seen dozens of people come to know Jesus. And he looks at his life and says, I'm the worst. says again in verse 16. Verse 16. As I sat with that and thought about that, I thought, why does Paul view himself as the worst of all? How? How? I know what he did, but I know what he had become. How does he view himself that way? Because, I don't know about you, but I would not consider myself to be a persecutor, or a blasphemer, or even a violent man. And I think what I've come to discover in my own life is, as I continue to be intentional and pay attention to what's happened in my life to me, the things that have been done or not done to me, the wrongs that have been done or not done to me, The abandonment, the dismissal, the rejection that I've experienced. And then I've taken and I've forced myself to sit with and think about these things that have been done to me. The painful reality of the way we live life is we live out of our own experience. What has been done to us, we then turn around and do to others. And as much as the sin against me is somewhat devastating, when I sit with the sin that I have done, the people I have abandoned, the people I have ignored, the people I have rejected, the abuse that I have committed, that weight is nearly crushing. And I can now understand how Paul can say, there's really not anybody worse stack us all up against the wall. You see, part of our journey in our life of faith 
is not to fix all the messes in our lives. Part of our journey and our walk of faith is to admit the brokenness in all of our lives. Because the more I'm honest about the sin against me and my sin against others, you know what happens? The more God uses you. That's what he does. You see, God doesn't want perfect people. God doesn't want people who've got it all figured out. God doesn't want people that look great, sound great, smell great, think they're great. God doesn't want any of them. God wants people to know Him. It's only by the grace of God and His mercy that I'm able to offer anything, anyone. And I'm so humbled He chooses me. That's how Paul saw himself. And that's what Paul wanted Timothy to know. Just like you heard Janelle say, he didn't want Timothy to say, Timothy, let me give you, let me give you a book, and it's got all the questions you're going to get asked, and these are all the answers to all the questions you're going to get asked. No, that's not what God wanted Timothy, or what Paul wanted Timothy to have. He said to him, He said, I want you to know that you have to move in your heart. You have to love people out of something God's done in you. And you have to know that this gospel. The most important message that I have, that I'm going to entrust you with it. And what I want you to do is be honest about your struggles, be honest about your pain, be honest about your heartache, and then I'm going to use you in an amazing, amazing way. It says here in verse 16, Christ Jesus, the reason that he experienced his mercy is so Christ could display his immense patience and example for those who would believe in him. You know, I think one of the things that God wants us to never lose sight of is that there is no one beyond the hope and the power of the gospel. There is no one beyond the hope and the power of the gospel. There is no parent beyond the hope and the power of the gospel. There's no sibling beyond the hope and the power of the gospel. There's no spouse beyond the hope and the power of the gospel. There's no child that's walked away from faith that's beyond the hope and the power of the gospel. Because Paul said, if the gospel can reach out and transform me, everybody's got a chance. We're going to have to see. Everybody. He closes with this in verse 17, really as a declaration. Um, Let's go. There we go. But I'd like for us just to read this together uh, as an anthem to celebrate God. So would you read this together with me? Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Still one more time. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. And when I think about what God wants in a church, I think God wants a church to be a place where part of the blueprints, part of the stuff underneath that you can't see, is that there are that there are hearts that love others in an amazing way. And there are people that are devoted to the gospel because they know where Jesus has saved them from. And they're devoted to sharing that gospel with anybody that they cross paths with. 
You know, the church is not supposed to be a safe place where there's no messes. There's no messes. The church is supposed to be a place where we open our arms wide, we open our hearts wide to people like, dare I say, Paul. People who are far from God, where we extend his mercy and grace, and maybe, just maybe, God might bring them to You know, as I thought about this idea of the church being loving, I thought, so how does that happen? How does that happen? Just put it up on a banner somewhere. You're a loving church. Make the church loving. I don't think so. And Johnny and Tim and I, you know, we make the church loving. We really can. Elders make the church loving. We really can. It's really up to you. It's up to you. You have to decide if you want part of your life, maybe all of your life, to be marked by sacrificially serving other people. Maybe this weekend you speak someone in your small group. Maybe it's someone on your ministry team. Maybe it's someone that you just met the last week or two here at CCC. Maybe it's someone that you serve shoulder to shoulder with. And God's saying, are you going to love that person this week? How can you love that person this week? Because if it doesn't happen amongst this group in this room, then it's really not going to happen. But the second thing that Paul says is he said the church should be a place where the gospel goes out. And at the center of the gospel is God's mercy and grace. And so for you to ask yourself this question, how does God want me to show mercy and grace to someone who's far from God this week? To someone who's far from God. And I don't know who that will be in your life. I don't know if it'll be someone who's a co-worker. I don't know if someone that's a stranger that you encounter. But who can you show mercy and grace to this week? Because God <coughs> chose to extend that to the worst guy known to people of faith in that day. So the question is, who is he tapping you on the shoulder and saying, will you show that to this week? Would you bow your heads with me as we close in prayer? And as we do, I just want to give you a moment to talk to God about the things that I shared this morning. to live a life of love. Sounds a bit more than fuzzy. But it's something you talk about over and over and over again. And so for people that are pursuing God or desire to know God and follow God, or for us to look at what does this look like in our faith journey is pretty
pretty stretching. I have no doubt, God, that you are going to bring someone across the path of every person in this room this week, maybe even this afternoon, where there will be an opportunity to love them. To set your own needs aside and say, how can I sacrificially serve this person? And in the same way, God, I, I just know that you are going to bring across our paths men and women and students, family members and co-workers that need a glimpse of your mercy and your grace. And may you use us to expose them to that. Help us, God. song, just invite you to stay seated and offer your heart uh, to the Lord this morning and try to clear the busyness out of what's going on as soon as you leave here and what might be on your mind this morning.